Welcome to episode 5 of our chapel podcast series, Faith That Works. This week's topic is from James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Rachel Crone. Loving God, many of us should not become teachers. And yet here I stand. We receive our gifts and vocations according to your grace. May your grace speak to us now that your church might be edified and your kingdom more fully realized. Amen. We all stumble in many ways. For years, I took comfort in this little clause because I thought it meant that I was not alone in my sin. I was not alone in my inability to perfectly love God and worthily magnify God's holy name. But I no longer take comfort in this verse because I recognize it for what it is. It's a warning to those of us who have been called and gifted as teachers to take great care with our words. So now, we all stumble in many ways, does not comfort it convicts. It does not pacify, it petrifies. Because I recognize that error is inevitable, and in my erring, I may cause harm to the church. But as much as this passage is a warning to teachers, there's a word here for each of us, if the Spirit grants us ears to hear. So let's begin in verse 1. My brethren, let many of you not become teachers, knowing that we will receive greater judgment. James' first exhortation is that people not become teachers. And the reason is that teachers, himself included, will be subject to greater condemnation. And this is something that we see illustrated in Jesus' ministry, especially in his condemnation of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So take, for example, Luke 42 to 54. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and love of God. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without realizing it. This is my favorite part. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. (laughs) And he says, Woe also to you. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that this generation may be charged with the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be charged against this generation. 
Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge you did not enter in, and you hindered those who were entering. Those who God has called to be teachers do well to take the words of Jesus to heart. We do well every time we read of his interactions with them to put ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees. What are we doing when we teach? Are we paying attention to the minutiae, tithing mint and rue and herbs of all kinds while simultaneously neglecting justice and the love of God? Or perhaps we've gone to the other extreme, teaching only justice and the love of God, while neglecting the parts of scripture that don't appear relevant to us. But Jesus clearly states that we ought to practice justice and love of God without neglecting the other commands. We must hold to the whole witness of the scripture and not just our favorite parts. One of the hardest things about being formed by the scriptures is understanding where to put our emphasis, how to hold all of the things that we know to be true about God together. The theology that I have found most damaging is theology that contains a kernel of truth but puts the emphasis in the wrong place. A theology that says true things about God but puts those truths in a damaging framework. For example, the prosperity gospel claims that God wants to bless you, and this is true. But the emphasis on this truth and a misunderstanding of what blessing means pulls the theology out of whack to the point that people think there's something wrong with them if God isn't blessing them in precisely the way they think they ought to be blessed. To teach well, to think well about God involves pressing into the nuances of who Scripture reveals God to be, to pay attention to what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law without neglecting the other matters. So Jesus sums up his awkward uh, dinner conversation in verse 52 when he says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Jesus points here to something that's critically important and a perennial difficulty for students and teachers alike. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered others who were entering. For Jesus to suggest that the teachers of the law had not entered into knowledge would be so shocking they probably would have wondered if they heard him correctly. If anyone knew the scriptures, it was these guys. I might not give my right hand to know the scriptures as well as they did, but I might give a couple of fingers. <laughs> so what could Jesus mean here? The Greek simply says you have taken away the key of knowledge. It doesn't say the knowledge of what or who. But that entering language suggests to me that what Jesus is talking about is entering into the kingdom of God. And then from this point onward in the book of Luke, Jesus consistently criticizes the, the Pharisees for refusing to enter into that kingdom. And so this points to another challenge that students and teachers of the Bible face. It's easy for us to think that because we know about the kingdom of God, 
that we are participants in the kingdom of God. But knowing about the kingdom and living as a citizen of that kingdom are two very different things. What's more, knowing about God does not mean living as a person in relationship with God. Likewise, knowing about scripture is not the same as being formed by scripture. So perhaps you have known someone who has encyclopedic knowledge of scripture, but reflects none of its values whatsoever. I hope you have not had the misfortune of knowing such a person. Let me assure you, they exist. And so we must never delude ourselves into thinking that knowledge of scripture is the same as being formed by scripture. That knowledge of God is the same as relationship with God. That knowledge about the kingdom of God is the same as living as a citizen of the kingdom of God, living as a person formed by kingdom values. All right, I'll go back to James. My brethren, let many of you not become teachers, knowing that we will receive greater judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If one does not stumble in word, this one is fully developed and able to bridle the whole body. The inclusion of that all in we all stumble in many ways suggests to me that James is shifting from teaching a from speaking about teachers in particular to all believers in general. We all stumble in many ways, and particularly when it comes to speech. According to James, the ability to control one's tongue flows out of profound maturity. Such a person is fully developed, fully in command of themselves. So it is no wonder that James discourages people from becoming teachers. If the tongue is hard to control, then teaching, a vocation whose main medium is words spoken by the tongue, is bound to be particularly perilous. Douglas Moo puts it this way, teachers are more susceptible to judgment than others because they regularly engage in that activity, which is hardest to keep from sin, one's speech. And James, illustrates this point by noting that just as a small bit in a horse's mouth can direct a huge animal, just as a small rudder can guide a massive ship, so too can a teacher's word set a student or congregation in a particular direction. And look how small a fire lights up how great a forest. A spark of misguidance can create a forest of calamity. Entire congregations can be set down the wrong path because of misguided words. But it's not only teachers. James says that we all stumble in many ways. And he elaborates on this in the coming verses where he underlines the universality of this challenge with an illustration from creation. For every character of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human but no human can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. The standard translations let us down a little bit in verses 7 and 8, where they translate mafusis, <laughs> I don't know, um, as species or kinds. And I don't know about you, but the, those words remind me of texts in Genesis um, that describe God creating all things according to their kinds. 
But the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, translates the Hebrew mean, kind, in Genesis 1 as genos, from which we get the word genus in English. Whereas the word James uses is not genos, but phusis, a word that has more to do with the disposition or character of a creature than with its species or class. And so James's word choice suggests that the point is not that human beings exercise dominion over every type of animal, but still cannot control themselves, but rather that human beings have the capacity to direct these creatures with their differing dispositions, but remain hopeless at controlling one member of their own body, the tongue. Our tongues have minds of their own, so to speak. Our tongues have their own character, their own foibles, and we cannot seem to consistently bridle them for good. In verse 8, James says that the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father. With it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. James suggests that our ability to bless God but to curse men is an unnatural state of affairs, an illogical and lamentable way of being. If we bless God with our tongue, how can we then turn and curse those who are made in God's image? If we bless the Father with our speech, how then can we curse his children? For James, this is preposterous, as unnatural as a spring bringing forth both salt and fresh water, or a fig tree producing olives. We all know that such a spring and such a tree are impossibilities, and yet we do not bat an eye when we hear both blessing and cursing coming from our own mouths. And so how do we allow ourselves to be formed by this text? Where do we go from here? I think these passages call us to, to count the cost of living out our vocation. If we are not sure that God has called and gifted us to preach and teach, we certainly ought not to rush into these roles, because James assures us that we will be judged more strictly. But regardless of our vocation, James urges us to be careful with our speech. This is something he emphasizes throughout the letter. In chapter 1, he exhorts us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. He reminds us that whoever considers himself pious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue is deceiving himself and his religion is worthless. In chapter 2, James urges us to speak and act as those who are going to be judged. In chapter 3, James reminds us that the tongue is a fire and desperately difficult to control. In chapter 4, he urges us not to slander one another, not to boast. And in chapter 5, he urges us not to swear by heaven or earth or any other thing, but rather to allow our yes to be yes and our no to be no. This is not a fringe issue for James. It's central to his understanding of how to live as a Christian person. But lest we despair, even as James exhorts us to speak and act as those who are going to be judged, 
He reminds us that we are judged by the law that gives freedom and that mercy triumphs over judgment. What's more, James tells us how to use our speech in a positive way. In chapter 5, he writes, Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. And so while our tongues have tremendous destructive power, as we are molded and conformed to the image of Christ, maturing in our faith and walking ever closer to God, our tongues also have the capacity, by God's grace, to do much good. And so let us cast ourselves on God's mercy, confessing our sins one to another, that we might be healed. Let us ask God to purify our hearts so that our speech might be always seasoned with salt and overflowing with grace. Let's pray. Merciful God, you give us gifts in proportion to our faith. We ask that you do not entrust us with too much, lest we stumble and cause others to stumble with us. We ask that you not entrust us with too little, lest we become complacent, self-reliant, or lazy. Keep us, your servants, from willful sins. Root out any wayward way within us. We ask that you would be gentle in your work in us. We are but dust on our journey home to dust, cracked vessels in whom you entrust your treasure. Clean us and we will be clean. Purify us and we will be pure. You have made us holy. Empower us to live as your holy ones, a kingdom of joyful priests who carry within us your words, the words of eternal life, which you have written on our hearts. We ask these things that we might faithfully love you, worthily magnify your holy name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.